This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing. All of incomparable quality. Hey, Kevin and Ron. Tom Silver here from This Old House. And I understand your show, Your Valuable Home, is really doing well. You guys are doing a great job. And I want to congratulate you on 100 episodes. That's a big deal. So keep up the good work. You guys are really helping out a lot of homeowners with their questions that they're asking, and you guys are giving them great advice and information, and it's really making a real difference. So by the way, Kevin, uh, you really do seem to know what, what you're talking about because you were in the magazine. So keep up the good work, both of you guys. And uh, thanks for watching this old house, by the way. Congratulations one more time on 100 episodes. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes your valuable home is for you the project replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble free your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors the college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home what to look for in replacement windows how to borrow sensibly against home equity and more college teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune their suggestions are great for roi it's time for your valuable home okay kev another show Another podcast, and we've got a replay about the new roof going on. Right? Yeah, new roof. Okay. Yeah, just completed. Susan's coming back on the air. She was just recently on a few weeks ago talking about her Provia doors that we just put in. And uh, we already did the siding, and everything's pretty much done, but the roof needed to be done. But it was just getting the job done and done correctly. So I guided her into a roofer that does step-by-step process, making sure that the job is done correctly. So she just wanted to come back on because now she feels like she's a podcaster guru and she wanted to come back on to talk about it okay so Susan, thanks again for coming on and talking about probably your final project correct we'll always come up with something <laughs> i like that talk <laughs> so the roof needed to get done i know when we did the siding probably about 10 years ago it was right around that time the roof needed to get done but not because it was leaking because it was time so what we wanted to do was anticipate the fact that we wanted to Get it done to avoid problems. Which is, you know, I, I, yeah, I tell you. It makes a lot of sense. It yeah. does. Mm-hmm. The reason why I say that is because everybody usually waits and says, hey, I'm going to wait till hail till damage have, or something yeah, coming. Yeah, until you have a hole in the roof or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we've said so many times upon times, a insurance company is there for accidental, not maintenance. So what she did is absolutely correct. She needed a new roof. It was time. Yeah, the insurance company's not going to pay for that. Right. Yeah. And so uh, there was no damage. She did the right thing. And... She got the roof done. What style were you looking at? Were you looking at anything different or anything special with a roof? No. All right. No, we were happy with the color that it was and the style that it was. But what we wanted to make sure was that the roofer would take it down, remove any shingles that were on it, and get it down to the plywood to see if there was any problems 
And as it turned out, he had to replace a couple of the sheets of plywood, which I suspect wouldn't have been discovered by a roofer that simply wanted to put shingles over the existing ones. Correct. Um, Absolutely would not have been discovered. One of the things we've always talked about at Your Valuable Home is when a roofer's installing a roof, and I think this should be across the board, everybody's got to do this, is take pictures. How the ice shield's properly done, how the flashing's properly done. Take pictures of every step. And homeowners should be doing this. Yeah. Sending the the photos back to my roofer, because I knew he was there, because Susan was sending me pictures of him there. Uh, I was calling him to say, hey, John, I know you're starting today. I want you to make sure that the elements are all in place and just send me the pictures so I can see and verify that the ice shield was dropped below the gutter, the step flashing was replaced, the ice and weather shield was done correctly, the ridge vent was put on. And those are the key criteria. A lot of homeowners today just want to, hey, I got a new roof. It looks great. I'm done until there's a problem. And these steps in place that homeowners should be asking for should be mandatory. So Susan has a little bit of a bonus because she's Asking the homeowner, me. You don't, you're not suggesting the homeowners take the pictures. The no. Roofers up there, you don't want to put them near the roof. The roofers, roofers. up there, take, the pic, take them from every angle. Yeah. A step-by-step process. Make sure the roof's ripped off. Take a picture of the plywood, the existing plywood, because now, as Susan said, there's a couple of sheets that were damaged and now could be replaced. And now you have documentation that the roof from start to finish was done correctly. Susan, do you know if that was plywood or was it OSB? Do you know? Plywood. 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 It had to be plywood, yeah. I have my doubts about certain things with OSB for OSB exteriors. should be used for vertical surfaces. Vertical. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a big, I never use it on a roof just oh. for the sag process. It's great up and down. They make, they make beams out of it and it's designed specifically for that. Going back to saying OSB when it's being installed as a new construction, if you're leaving it out in the weather for a long period of time, it's going to swell up a little bit too. So there's a lot of issues that I uh, don't like using it. I mean, look, I know it's out there. I'm not bashing OSB. I don't want to say I'm not bashing it. It's just, I like using plywood in certain applications, much better. I agree. And that's one application where you should use plywood, I think. Yep. Roof. Yep. Well, yep. I got OSB under my shingles. Right. It, the whole, I'm not saying that everybody's got to be in a panic. You know, it's it's there. Your house has been there for, what, 25, 30 20, years? It'll be 20, 24 years. Right. And yeah. it's still going to be there for another 25 mm-hmm. years. I'm just saying if I have the availability, if I'm going to be building an addition or a home, I'll be using CDX. Yeah, I would. And yeah, I would too. In my addition, you know where my OSB is in my TJIs, the beams, the joist beams that run across. That's where you would have it because it is. It's They're a laminated much beams, right? Correct. Laminated beams. Yep. So that's but where they you are put about. Them. How how thick are they? Well, it's a half inch plywood with two cords on top, like a two by three top and bottom. Okay. And they're designed specifically to have a load carry expand and extend longer in certain applications where you have one wall to the other instead of being 12 foot or 15 foot you can probably go up to 20 feet even going further than that depending on what the architect's going so to hold the load correct so it's a lot of good things and uh, so one of the things for i know susan you've been on the air with us several times when we were yes, on i remember yeah. broadcasting and podcasting you always asked to do some type of work with the house and, and ron's looking he's like what, what do you mean every time we've done work over there she wanted to do something to be part of the job process and my roofer sent me a picture of her installing shingles on her bay window. Hats so, off to you, Susan. Your roofer also said, I better not try to make a living at it. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. But I, I did tell him that you were probably going to get involved somehow. And it was a safety. I mean, that's one of the big things, safety issue. But it was on the first floor, and I just started nailing. How was it to install your first roofing shingle? Um. Well, put it this way, he prepped the shingle, somebody put it in place, there were three nails sticking out of it, and I got up on the ladder about five steps because I'm terrified of heights. They had the ladder secured, 
The only problem was I swung at that nail probably 15 times and it wasn't going anywhere. So I don't know that I can claim that I installed a shingle, but I got an appreciation for what it is when you know what you're doing and you can install a shingle, but that's not me. But we always tell people you did sleep at a Holiday Express. And, and you'll never become a roofer, right? <laughs> right. Okay. No, but, uh... I will never become a roofer, but I want to add one extra thing about what people should uh, look for in a job, and that's cleanup afterwards. Because sure. there's a tremendous amount of debris that comes down between the shingles, the dirt that was on the roof, the nails that they're using, everything. And um, I have to say that, Kevin, your recommended roofer cleaned up everything. A superb job. I'll add to that. When my roof was done, which goes back about a year and a half, two years now, they're supposed to hang these tarps right. off the roof, they right? They did. Well, they did. mine were hung was- on a very windy day, and I had six bushes stripped when the shingles came down, and I had to argue with the roofer to replace my bushes. That should have been a no contest. I, I did get new bushes, right. but that can happen if they do it on a windy day and the stuff blows all over the place. Shingles come down, strip the bushes. Yeah, so it's going to be a horror that. story. Yeah. Yeah, so, but I'm glad you were very happy with the job. And just for any of our listeners, listen, contact me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. We would love to get you on the air so you can talk about your project. We got another horror story today. We always have a horror story. We always will have it. If we do 10,000 episodes, we'll have a horror story. We're going to have horror stories. So here's, we always try to answer questions with homeowners, but sometimes I know you and I talked about this prior is that when homeowners are referring somebody. So again, it's just social media. Somebody was out in one of the the emails that I get, postings that I get, and she was saying, hey, look, I got a great job. It was a great job that she was happy with, and she wants uh, to put this contractor's name out. And I just chimed in very nicely and said, hey, listen. You mean give them a good reference? Yeah, which is Mm -hmm. fine. Which Look, I'm not here to take work away from anybody, but I'm here to make sure the job is going to be done correctly. So I said, by the way, can you send me some pictures to the homeowner of the during construction? I just want to see what's going on. So she was nice about it, and she put all these pictures up of her bathroom, which I was fine with. But I said, hey, listen, uh, I'm just looking at the electric, the way it was run. Uh, there's some issues that I've seen here. You have to run a home run, which is code, which I have to run a wire from there straight to the box. It's called a home run that because it's a new circuit that we're going to be putting in. And gotcha. when you get the permit, gotcha. the inspection company is going to be looking at this in the state of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And it, most townships or states, even anywhere you go, they're going to be updating everything. So by doing the update, you're going to need to get inspected. So he just kept the old electric that was in there. So I said, well, listen, that, that's a little bit of a problem. So if you can, maybe I'm wrong about this. Can you send me a picture of the approved process that the permit uh, was requiring, uh, which is an approved sticker saying, hey, look, the rough's been approved. It was done correctly. Now it's time to close it up. Then I asked for, I said, listen, um, since you're going to refer the guy in that township we're, we're talking about, you need to be a master plumber. You have to have a master license, which a plumber's got to go through a couple years of apprenticeship and then work for somebody before they even get their master license. I said, can you send me that master license number? Because it's, it's going to be on the permit too. That didn't go over so well. She was very upset that I was uh, making comments about her bathroom. I said, listen, I'm not making comments about your bathroom. I'm making comments about you referring somebody who's doing the job not to code, not getting permits, and not doing the job right. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. And that's a big problem. That's a problem. Just because you're happy with it's something you a problem for the next person. That's what I said in one of the things. I said, well, listen, what if you sell the house in two years? They didn't upgrade if it's done wrong because it wasn't inspected. Now, that person just sold you 
sold the per- that problem to the next person. Yeah, and and the person who buys it, and, you know, and that's been the course of events anymore with the seller's market. Right. The person that buys it, not going to ask the question. No. no. The, inspection? Nah, we, we ain't going to do that. Don't worry about it if right. it's done wrong. Exactly. But that's what we always try to tell with people when you're getting a job done. Contractors should be getting permits. If you're doing electrical, plumbing, moving plumbing, beams and structural, you, you got to get a permit. Now, we just had recently one of my customers on, and I had to get a permit. It was the same bathroom, basically. We did our bathroom, but I got a permit because I knew I had to get an electrical inspection. I had to get a rough inspection. I got to get a final inspection because then the job's going to be done correctly. And then this way, what I do is inspect it so now the homeowner knows it's done correctly. This homeowner doesn't know what was done. They're just looking at the finish work. And I get it. Look, if you're happy with it, I'm not saying anything good or bad about it. All I was saying was the understuff that nobody knows was never inspected. So this contractor for doing a job that shouldn't have really done it without a permit. Like I, my problem is if you're a contractor. You shouldn't do any electrical or plumbing without a permit, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, okay. I, I like the way it said, it's I'm a contractor. No, 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 no. Let, let's get this correct. You're not a contractor if you're not doing a job right. Just because you're doing a homeowner's house and doing a job without a permit, not doing it correctly. So he's a detractor. <laughs> it's just frustrating for me to see this because as being a contractor in this area where we're doing work, I got to compete against that. Well, how fair is it for a legitimate contractor? Well, you certainly don't want to pass along a good reference about this guy. You don't want to be involved in that because then you, you know, you're complicit in it. Next. Well, my question is, I, I will, again, the, the, the trail went quiet after I started chiming in. But I just, I said, well, listen, I just need to know why would you be referring? Can you tell me some of the specific points that you really like that these, this contractor did that you're happy with? So maybe the person should work for somebody. Because if you're going to be a contractor, don't you want to do the job correctly Absolutely. from start to finish? Absolutely. This is not done correctly. Now, again, being a legitimate contractor, we have to have a master plumber. I have to have uh, an electrician that's going to do the job correctly. I have to get a permit for the job. I have to carry workman's comp. I have to pay taxes on this. Well, that's a lot rolled into it. How am I and legitimate contractors are supposed to compete with guys that are handyman that have no clue what they're doing, not licensed, not properly insured, and are not getting permits? How, how does that work out? Well, you don't. You can't. You can't. Well, I don't mean, you think it makes it a little more difficult for the legitimate contractors? Absolutely. So absolutely. I asked the homeowners. And the bad rep rubs off, too. And the bad rep, all these horror stories are people that are, they're either new companies, they have no clue what they're doing. Everyone we talked and we found about over how many horror shows have we done over the past nine years, nine plus years now? 500 horror stories. How many horror stories did, did I do for people? None. Because if the job's done right from the beginning, you're not going to have a problem. Look, things can happen. I get it. The contractor can come back. But if you're starting down a, a wrong course doing a job with not getting electric inspected, not doing your home runs correctly that you need to be done because the inspection company is going to require that, not doing certain elements of plumbing that you have to do, that's got to be done correctly. If you just put it together and putting masking tape around, it's not going to work. But these are the things that if you do it correctly. Is that possible? It could be a fire hazard at a later date too? The electric, I mean... You don't know unless you really see it, but getting an inspection company to come in and verify that what you did is correct, mm-hmm. mm, yeah, they check all that. If you're doing a kitchen, they're going to make sure the GFIs are in place, the home runs are so in place, everything's that, grounded. None of that has been checked. None of that has been checked. No, there's no inspector showing up. Wow. So you're really taking a, you're taking a chance with your, fam- with, with your family, too. Yeah, but why is the homeowner referring this contractor to They don't some, know. They don't know. Well, maybe they shouldn't be doing it. We always talk about bad contractors. I, I still say some of the homeowners, there's some bad homeowners trying to refer people that aren't very good. So maybe you should really understand what this contractor is doing underneath. Did you convince her not to do it? 
Well, she went cold. She never uh, responded uh, back well, to some maybe, of my. Well, maybe you did convince her. The only responses that did. I got was all the heart signs saying, liking what I said, just to protect homeowners out there. I just want to protect people by getting the right job, hiring the right contractor. But if this guy's starting a business, trying to get in there, starting a new job, and doing this kind of work, it's no good. There's going to be more horror stories we're going to have. So let's try to minimize our horror wow. stories, mm -hmm. and uh, we can go from there by getting you the right job right from the beginning. Got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Kev, we've talked many times about the importance of curb appeal and the value quality products add to exterior home improvements. Provia fiberglass entry doors and vinyl replacement windows add that value. And for huge impact, curb appeal and value, there's Provia vinyl siding and manufactured stone, right? Yep, the super polymer formulation of Provia siding reflects heat and protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup for lasting color and value. Provia siding comes in traditional, insulated, and decorative profiles, all with the look and texture of wood. People often stop me and ask about my Provia Cedar Max siding. I've actually gotten siding jobs that way. Really? Absolutely. Okay. Well, how about colors and styles? My customers love the palette of popular colors, including dark and bold hues, and a variety of styles from clapboard to Dutch lap, board and batten, and chic, like mine. And you can see it all and how the colors and styles work with Provia entry doors and vinyl replacement windows at Provia's fabulous website, provia.com backslash YVH. Also, check out Provia's Manufactured Stone, another wow product for the eye-pop and exterior and interior accents. I just used it on my fireplace. Amazing how real Provia manufactured stone looks. That's because individual stones in Provia stone veneer are made in molds created by professional stonemasons. They use actual stones to form the molds. That's how Provia gets its rugged texture, shadow lines, and coloring of real quarried stone. The assortment of shapes and sizes and 10 stone color palettes even take geographic variations into account. Once again, Provia delivers on its mission, which is to serve by caring for details in ways that others won't. Visual of possibilities at Provia.com backslash YVH. Okay, Ron, as we come to these feature segments, you definitely come up with some great and interesting ideas. What do we got today? If you or any of our listeners have ever been hit or hit a large animal, deer and elk, uh, it's happened to me. A deer ran off a hill not too long ago, and I ended up with $7,000 in damage in my car. I was doing 25 miles an hour, but he really, boom, right in the front of the car. The car was damaged, but I also felt badly for the deer. He got to his feet, and it looked like he had a bad, it could maybe be a broken back leg. So if, if you live in our part of Pennsylvania, where we are, you find deer in your development. Have you found that at night? I do. Absolutely. Sometimes when you're front, I live next to a state front park. step. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay. so. I've often wondered why someone hasn't come up with a solution to animals, automobile collisions. Turns out someone has. Our friends at the Pew Charitable Trust... And their partners. And here to fill us in is Matt Scro, Project Director of U.S. Public Lands and Rivers Conservation for Pew Charitable Trust. Matt is one of two Pew people that we're having on this week and next week. This week we're going to get into this, to me, a very important situation here uh, with the animals and taking care of the animals and making sure that they don't collide with people. Matt, welcome to your valuable home. Thanks, Ron. Nice to be here. Why do animals migrate? You talk about migrating animals, and first time you can identify the migration patterns, and why should we care? And what do our roads and highways have to do with animal migration? We can think about this from our own perspective, from a human perspective. We move quite often, right? We move, we get in our cars to go to the grocery store. Yep. We go to the hardware store. We visit family members, homes, et cetera, et cetera. And for animals, it's, you know, the basic concept is the same, but it's often on a seasonal basis. And 
we can take a animal like a, a mule deer, for example, um, a herd of mule deer in the middle or western or even deer and elk in the eastern portion of the United States. In the summertime, they generally like to be in higher elevations, hills, mountains, where it's cooler, there's fresh forage. And in the fall, when the weather starts to change, starts to snow, it gets cold. They don't want to be where there's a higher snowpack, where it's colder, where it's harder to find food. So they will migrate. They migrate down slope or they migrate um, sometimes across great distances to find the right place and where they want to be for that uh, for that overwintering. And then in the springtime, as green up starts, the process starts all over. And so this migration phenomena is actually very important for many species, uh, whether they fly, swim, or walk, in the case of a mule deer or an elk. And we're learning just in the last 10 or 15 years how important these migration patterns are. And you can imagine the number one thing that gets in the way of those migration patterns are roads and highways. The very yeah, thing sure. that we use <laughs> to get from point A to point B are the things that are pretty darn dangerous for wildlife migration. And these are roads and highways, as you mentioned, Ron, in the beginning, can also be dangerous for, for us as drivers when, when we come into contact with those animals trying to get across the road. Absolutely. I know that firsthand. I'll tell you, it was, it was like hitting a truck. There wasn't much damage. It looked 7, like physically, bucks. 7,000. 7,000 bucks. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot. Pew must have partners in this effort to assure the peaceful coexistence of, between animals and humans. Who, who would they be? In one sense, wildlife can't exist or thrive without their habitat or, or their home range. So it's imperative that we work with wildlife and land managers, such as state wildlife agencies, federal public land managers like the U.S. Forest Service, tribes and private landowners, too, you know, particularly agricultural producers who often share their property with wildlife. Mm -hmm. But in another sense, because of the impact of those roads and highways that they have on wildlife, as I mentioned, and we're talking about one to two million collisions with large animals every year. We're talking about more than 26,000 human injuries that result from those collisions every year in the United States. And we're talking about at least $8 billion in damages and wow. costs associated with these collisions. It's a big problem. Big so we also have to be working with departments of transportation. You know, they are responsible for building our infrastructure and hopefully doing it in a way that facilitates passage, not only for drivers, but also safe passage for wildlife as well. Getting ready for this interview, I did a lot of reading, and I know there are a number of different approaches to wildlife crossings, okay, to get them from point A to point B over a road or over a highway. Can you describe them and the conditions or circumstances that dictate the use of each of these approaches? Yeah, the basic point about a wildlife crossing is really to reduce the frequency that a car or vehicle comes into contact with an animal, right? We know that's a lose-lose situation every time it happens. Oh, and yeah. so there's a variety of different ways to do that. At the most basic level, we have measures that we're all very familiar with in the form of a yellow deer crossing sign along the road, you mm -hmm. know, deer crossing next five miles. It turns out that these signs are usually not particularly effective at substantially reducing wildlife vehicle collisions. Drivers 
don't see the sign, we don't pay attention to it, or even if we do pay attention to it, we can't avoid the animal. The animal pops out in front of us and bam, even if we were going only 30 or 40 miles an hour. So if we step it up a notch, there are electronic warning systems that can be activated when an animal approaches a roadway and sometimes you know, flashing lights will come on telling drivers there's an animal ahead, they need to slow down. These work better. The sensor and the electronics aren't always reliable. And even if they are, you know, accidents still can happen. The best method, which also turns out to be the most expensive, is to design a roadway so that the animal and the vehicles are separated. And this is done by building or retrofitting an underpass or an overpass mm -hmm. that animals can use to get across the road. These crossing structures are almost invariably accompanied by various lengths of directional fencing that funnel the animals to the structure therefore reducing the risk that the wildlife don't get on the roadway otherwise, that they actually can get to the crossing structure. And they turn out to be the most effective. And while they're the most expensive, they actually pay for themselves relatively quickly with the savings that we see in avoided collisions. And that's the good news. When I had that happen to me, you go to Carfax, your car is on Carfax. And I tried to get rid of my car and the value of it just goes right it like really goes south. So there's no way you can recoup that. Even though the car is fixed like new, you can't recoup it, which is right. a good but an accident. Good reason to have a leased car. You just turn it in. But I just th throw that in as an aside. So it really has repercussions. Uh, and if you, if you love animals, uh, you just don't want to see this happen to them too. Oh, know? yeah. Well, Matt, uh, down the shore where I have a house, it, one of them is Sea Isle. Uh, the main entrance coming to the sea, they actually raise the road so the turtles can go under the road. Mm. So that's saving that out because I, where my house, I'm at Ocean City, one town up. There's been several times since I had the house where I actually got out of the car because I have a big truck. I kind of blocked a lot of the road up because I have a lot of turtle crossings. Mm -hmm. And I hate to see those little guys getting run over. So I'm, I'm on the one out on the road playing Frogger, getting that turtle back off the road. Uh, so they're safe. It's a good thing to do, Kev. There's a lot of people that actually do that. They're very cautious, even though uh, we don't have it in Ocean City at the south end, uh, that the, the turtles, when they do cross, people are very conscious about that. And uh, they'll go pick them up and get them off and put them into safety. So that's one thing nice to see with the residents in Ocean City that will do that. So for the big animals, Matt, it's either go up over the road or go under the road, right? <clears throat> that's right. And every species of animal has their own preferences. So... Out, out west, if uh, if you're dealing with bighorn sheep, uh, they generally don't want to go through a tunnel. Um, pronghorn animal also would rather have the sky above them. They, they need light above them. Whereas with deer, they may be less picky. They'll go through a, a box culvert uh, underneath the highway and, and be just fine. So you have to take all of that design consideration into account too. What is the animal that we're trying to facilitate passage for and how does the crossing design reflect those preferences and like you mentioned with turtles they can be a little bit easier because we don't have to build an entire bridge for them we can retrofit maybe an existing culvert or box culvert sure are there a lot of them where you are yeah every year we're always seeing several of them that are coming out on the road uh, i'm not down there much but it's just uh, when you see them uh, i do see people when you when you, you pick well, them up and get them out of harm's way when you see yeah. lights the brake lights going on just know to stop because it, basically what that is it's a turtle crossing right 
there are probably states that do this really, really well. And I think you do a lot of your work out west. Oregon and Colorado are two of them. How they improved the collision statistics and, and some of those numbers that you were throwing out there before? So in recent years, scientific research and, and technology actually has allowed us to pinpoint the areas where these collisions are happening most frequently mm -hmm. and where the animals are migrating on an annual basis. And so it's actually a relatively new thing that we have this really accurate insight into where and how animals are moving, whether it's a migration behavior or just general movement. And so with that information, we have a lot more confidence now in putting a crossing structure exactly where it needs to be, where it will have the greatest uh, return on investment, the greatest benefit to drivers and the greatest benefit to wildlife. And what we're seeing now with the benefit of that scientific research is after the installation goes in with the directional fencing tied into those crossing structures, it's not uncommon for us to see wildlife vehicle collisions reduce by over 90%. I mean, it almost eliminates the problem. Uh, and if it doesn't totally eliminate it, it gets pretty darn close. And we're seeing those statistics increasingly common in places like Colorado and in Oregon, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But there's also plans underfoot for North Carolina and Tennessee and Western Virginia and even Pennsylvania with the re reintroduced elk populations there. Wildlife migrations, undoubtedly, I mean, they don't know where township lines start and finish and stuff like that, county and state boundaries. How do you convince those varied interests, and they have to be varied interests, to come together and reach an agreement on what to do? It's a great question, and it's actually one of the hardest parts of this job. I would imagine. <laughs> you know, with, with a wildlife crossing itself, you can, in a basic sense, throw money at it and solve the problem. But you also have to, like I said earlier, conserve the habitat that's associated on both sides of the road with that crossing structure. And with animals that are moving across the landscape, we are invariably talking about private land, maybe public land, maybe tribal land, or all of the above. If we're not effective at working with all of those land managers or property owners, it only takes one link to break in order to disrupt the migration or movement behavior of the wildlife. And so cross-jurisdictional collaboration and cooperation is actually the most important job part of this work. And it can be done. And it depends on which agency or land tenure that we're talking about. When it comes to public lands like Forest Service land or Bureau of Land Management land, there's ways that they can manage these migration routes to ensure that they remain permeable, that they remain open for animals. And even on agricultural lands that are privately owned, the Farm Bill conservation programs like Conservation Reserve Program do offer incentives, financial incentives 
to landowners to potentially leave some of that land fallow, leave some of it in a natural state. And if those areas are within an important migration route, you can you can effectively get at, at the conservation outcome in collaboration with private landowners as well. With cities, a lot of it has to do with urban planning. You know, how do we want to design or plan mm-hmm. for our green space? And how can that green space be put in areas that can maximize the benefit not only to humans, but also to wildlife, perhaps uh, as a wildlife corridor or migration path? So it takes all different forms of collaboration across city, county, state, and federal planning (laughs) jurisdictions. And it can get messy quick, but there are a number of really good examples in which all of those partners have come together and been able to um, really do something good with protecting these uh, wildlife migration routes. Well, my hat's off to you because to get any two people to agree on any one thing anymore, it's like Matt's making it sound like it is possible. You're doing great work and... uh, (laughs) off to you. What are all the states that have taken positive action on wildlife crossings? Are there more than the ones you mentioned already? Absolutely. And every year the list is growing. In fact, New Jersey, uh, which you mentioned earlier, is in the East a real leader in thinking about how to design and build roadways in a way that is permeable for wildlife and mitigate impacts to wildlife. North Carolina is starting to really take the issue seriously next to Interstate 40 that runs from North Carolina west into into Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Florida has an extremely visionary Um, project called the Florida Wildlife Corridor that goes from the border of Georgia all the way down to the southern tip of the state. It's a blueprint for how to do conservation in a way that's connected and allows for that ecosystem permeability throughout the state. And of course, in the West, you mentioned Colorado and Oregon have been leaders. The state of Utah, uh, the state legislature there just passed an extremely strong measure that dedicates $20 million to wildlife crossings throughout the state of Utah. Yeah. Nevada is also on the cusp of um, passing a law in their legislative session this year um, for, for the same reason. California, you may imagine, has also been a real leader in this space mm-hmm. and other states as well. You know, New Mexico, Wyoming is often at the center of this issue because of the big game wildlife populations that they have. It's catching on because there is a win-win solution here. There is a way to improve driver safety. There's a way to improve wildlife populations. And as you can imagine, with the list of states I just named, it's, it's an issue that cuts across political identities, rural and urban populations. When we do polling on this issue and we ask people what they think about these wildlife crossings, what they think about the, the importance of conserving wildlife corridors, we see across the board just a lot of support. And that's why a lot of these efforts are successful in such a diversity of states that we see. Well, here's an interesting wrinkle that I, I read about when, uh, when I was reading about your work. You claim that what's happening with climate causes changes in animal migration patterns and underscores the importance of animal crossings. So how can those involved in the development of wildlife crossings take changes in animal migration patterns into account? The variability that we see in our weather patterns 
is is crazy, right? I mean, yeah. whether it's the intense flooding, the the droughts, sometimes it feels like we get both just in a year or two. And that is happening all over the country. So imagine what those really extreme weather events, they obviously impact us in a major way, but you can imagine that they impact these wildlife populations sure. as well. What it does is it emphasizes the need for that ability to move in response to those extreme events that might be happening. Hey, if I can't find any forage here, I need to get over that mountain range. I need to get over that hill. Maybe the forage is better over there. Maybe it rain there. There's lots of ways in which the changing climate impacts the ability for wildlife populations to thrive, but it really underlines the importance of connectivity and, and movement. And so what we can do is think about these structures in the context of our changing climate over time. And it's not easy because as we know, it's getting warmer slowly over 10, 20, 30 years. That's one concern. But the bigger concern here and now are those extreme events that really shake things up for wildlife. And so what we need to do is work with scientists who are on the cutting edge of studying how these movement patterns occur now and how they might shift in the near future and the long-term future and use that information to inform where and how we build infrastructure that may facilitate their movement. We know we need to do more of it. We just need to make sure it's climate informed so that in 10, 20 or 50 years from now, that wildlife bridge is not a bridge to nowhere. That's a very, very good point. I would imagine this year has been tough to get a call on uh, how uh, animals are migrating with these atmospheric rivers that keep hitting California, one after the other after the other. It's amazing. I mean, the, the snowpack in the in the Sierra, if we think about a place like Lake Tahoe and, and Truckee, Nevada, you know, they have 15 feet plus of snow on the ground. So back to that, you know, why do animals migrate question? You can imagine the difficulty of walking around uh, a forest in, in 15 feet of snow, right? Uh, even if you're a moose with extremely long legs, you're not going to get anywhere. And so tough. you've got to come down, down slope. You got to find those warmer areas where there's less snow. Absolutely. And that's, that emphasizes the importance of that migratory behavior. Yeah. The California is a good example of that right now, this past winter. Is the value of animal crossings broadly understood and acknowledged today? It's catching on and it all comes back to the research and the science that's been going into this issue over the last 10 or 15 years. Scientists have started to put these collars on the animals. They have a GPS unit on them. Right. I was going to and that. they can talk to satellites every couple of hours. And that technology, GPS technology, as you, as you probably know, has been around for a solid, you know, 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. But in the research realm, it's only been in the last like 15 or 20 at the most in which they've become affordable enough and, and technologically advanced enough to just put them on an animal. That information is giving us an incredible amount of insight into that movement. It really just can't be understated. And so the stories that come out of that information you know, oh my gosh, there was a mule deer who walked 322 miles from the red desert of Wyoming to, to eastern Idaho. It really captures the imagination of these journeys 
these arduous journeys that these animals take on a seasonal basis. And I think it engenders a lot of support for the importance of conserving our wildlife populations. In the case of big game animals like elk and deer, yeah, these are also animals that put meat on the table for a lot of families mm-hmm. in, in rural America. They're animals that we see quite often, we have a relationship with. And now we understand the importance of conserving these migration routes that are so important for them. And we have a vested interest in, in helping facilitate that. And, and we know that there's a residual benefit that comes back to us in the form of reduced collisions along roadways, improved wildlife populations. And so it's, it's good news, this new information that's been coming forth. And I think that the public is becoming more and more aware of these solutions that exist. And that's why we're seeing state legislatures and even the federal government really starting to take some proactive approaches to conservation measures. Well, you know, it's interesting because with GPS, when you go in to do a presentation to a county, a state, whatever, on the state level, you got proof. You got conclusive proof. You know, these elk, are they're coming your way. <laughs> there are 10,000 elk coming your way. And we have to do something about this, right? That's right. And we call that empirical data. There and <laughs> it's, it's real stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said. And so when we can go to a land manager or a city planner or whoever the decision maker might be, a transportation department, and have that real data and say, we know that these animals are moving from here to here and we have a problem spot there. What can we do about it? That's powerful. It is very powerful. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the, the biggest tools in your toolkit, right? That's right. There are a lot of articles on the, the Pew uh, Family Trust, uh, Charitable Trust website that show the migration patterns. You can actually track them and as they you know come through the country. And uh, it's amazing just to see that. And you never, I was never aware of it before. Who was? Who was? But now there's empirical, as you say, proof about that. What is happening with federal and state funding? There's a lot because of these solutions coming online, because of the effectiveness that that we're seeing of late states and and the federal government are really responding to that. So I mentioned that uh, just last week, the state of Utah uh, allocated $20 million state funds for wildlife crossings. A couple of years back, Congress took a big step and created a new program in the highway bill, which is called the Infrastructure and Jobs Investment Act that was passed in 2021. I created a new program worth $350 million. It's a grant program that has to be matched by non-federal dollars. And uh, state departments of transportation can apply for that. Tribal entities can apply for that. A lot of people can apply for that. And they're coming forth with projects all over the country. Hey, we can build a wildlife crossing here, here, and here. Um, and they're applying for those funds. It's pretty exciting because what we're seeing is between states allocating money to this problem, feds starting to really put their money where their mouth is on this issue, there's capacity now. And it may not necessarily be enough capacity, but it is a lot more capacity than we had just five years ago. And so we're excited to see in the near future, in the next two or three years, our expectation is that the prevalence of these structures is going to increase dramatically. And I'm hopeful that places like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and of course, Colorado and the Oregons of the world are also going to be able to really tap into these new funds and be able to bring some of these structures out of the ground more quickly. I have never been able to discern any migration patterns with the deer in our area. They're just there all the time, all year round. How would you suggest local towns 
townships keep non-migratory animals and, motor, and motorists from colliding with each other? Because we have a lot of we have a lot of deer accidents here, right? That we do. Yeah. It's not quite as easy because you don't have that very well-defined pinch point where every spring and fall, you know, the animals are going to be crossing along their traditional migration routes. But you do have these habitat patches that we know the animals uh, reside in. And we know that, you know, because of the accidents that are recorded, that a road or a highway that cuts through that habitat area is responsible for those for those collisions. It comes back to that value of the directional fencing that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. because what you can do is it's not about it. it it's obviously important to put a, a structure in a particular area that will facilitate uh, safe passage across the roadway, but you can tie in that directional fencing. Sometimes we see the directional fencing go out for 10 or even 15 miles you know, away from the actual crossing structure. And that can, that's an insurance policy that you know not only do we know animals are crossing right at this particular area but even if they're wanting to cross the road five or ten miles down from that crossing they're going to be funneled eventually toward the actual crossing structure and so directional fencing can be our friend in the case where we don't have an extremely well-defined migratory pathway Yeah, I'd like to see something happen where we live in Bucks County, Bucks County, Montgomery County, too. In the West and other parts of the U.S., are tribal governments also part of the mix? I mean, I would think they would be very, very sympathetic to what you do, would they? They are. And there's actually on the Flathead Reservation in West Central Montana, they've been so far ahead of the curve that they were installing wildlife crossing structures uh, 30 years ago and have dozens and dozens of structures in that part of the world. And um, in Southern Colorado, the Southern Ute tribe has been a leader in research on uh, mule deer migrations that occur between Northern New Mexico and Southern Colorado. And they've also been a strong partner in a large wildlife overpass that was just installed on on US Highway 160 in, in Southern Colorado. So tribes have been at the table for a long time on this issue and are increasingly an important partner, I think. Not only given the fact that many of them have their own tribal lands, but they also have research programs and traditional ecological knowledge that many of us do not have. That's a good thing when it comes to bringing those those skills and insights to bear on, on solving this issue. I would think that insurance companies have a vested interest in your success and the success of your work. Have you found them to be cooperative in terms of support and funding? Absolutely. They've been helpful in pushing through some of the state legislative initiatives regarding funding for wildlife crossings. I can think back to last year's legislative session in Colorado, where not only did the insurers um, stand in support of uh, of a bill that that passed there, but also the state state trooper union was in strong support mm. of of the measure because they're often the first responders in some of these pretty gnarly wildlife vehicle collisions that don't end well for either the human occupant or the animal. So we see a lot of diverse support for this, the insurers, state troopers, and a variety of other um, actors that may not always be very involved in wildlife conservation measures. 
Matt Scrow, thank you very, very much. It's been very, very informative for me, Kevin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And much needed in terms of community improvement and keeping people safe. So we thank you very much for that. Where do people go if they want to learn more about this specific work that you're doing? Go to our website, which is www.pewtrusts.org slash wildlife corridors. P-E-W-T-R-U-S-T-S dot O-R-G forward slash W-I-L-D-L-I-F-E-C-O-R-R-I-D-O-R-S. And we keep that updated with a lot of information on this issue, both from a transportation perspective and also a habitat perspective. Your life could be at stake and an animal's life could be at stake. So let's get behind it. Great talking to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Hey, Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments? How do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship. The Provia way. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 